You are tuning in to On The Money with Dynamic Funds, a podcast series that delivers access to some of the industry's most experienced active managers and thought leaders. We're sitting down to ask them the pertinent questions to find out their insights on the market environment and navigating the investment landscape. Welcome to another edition of On The Money. I'm your host, Mark Brisley. My conversation today is with veteran growth manager, Noah Blackstein, who's been managing US and global growth mandates over the course of his investment career, and now manages over $10 billion for us at Dynamic Funds. Noah last joined us on this podcast back in July of 2020. And while much has changed, what hasn't is the unwavering commitment by Noah to the same investment process that has been at the core of his long-term success during the past 23 years. This investment process is what contributed not only to his successful 2020 returns across his mandates, but also to his long-term track records across the same mandates. We're hopefully at the beginning of the end of this devastating global pandemic, but the economy that lies ahead will be very different in many ways. And as Noah has discussed over the last couple of weeks, the acceleration of secular and digital transformation in many industries will not mean revert. He continues to stress that the focus remain on the fundamentals and what you are ultimately paying for, which is the value in future growth through earnings and cash flow. To jump right into our conversation then, Noah, I'm going to read you a quote from a recent commentary of yours where you said, going through these types of rotations has been quite common over the past 10 years. When good or bad periods occur, our focus on our investment process doesn't waver. Great companies have always let us up and out. Unlike other periods, the economy is looking better, not worse, six months out, and will further accelerate the growth for many of our names. So, let's talk about what you've seen in the markets since our last discussion, your thoughts on this rotation that has taken place in the markets, which I believe you said started back in August of 2020. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that we've seen is that since the financial crisis, macro uh, investing has kind of morphed, really no longer is very effective between bonds and equities for a variety of reasons, uh, some of which are due to quantitative easing by central banks. And so a lot of macro investing has morphed into factor investing or sector rotating. And so we've sort of seen uh, these quant type funds rotate between value and growth factors during different periods of time. Their signals are usually triggered by the slope of the yield curve. So that's the, the, the curve that uh, uh, the duration of a whole bunch of treasury bonds kind of makes. And the steeper that curve is, it's usually a indication that the economy is getting better. Um, and for a lot of quants, that to them says it's time to rotate into financials or into cyclicals uh, or into some more economically sensitive names out of some of the uh, growth areas. Uh, Interest rates really started moving up in August of uh, 2020. Uh, They continued to power forward once we got the positive vaccine news in November. And then they've really taken off uh, year to date uh, with the yield on the benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury up nearly 90% since December 31st. So it's been a a substantial move, not only in the 10-year yield, but with low rates anchored or held constant by the federal bank, the yield curve has, has tilted up. And that's really resulted in a huge sector rotation uh, into some of the more um, distressed or harder hit areas uh, of the overall market. Uh, some might call it a rotation into value, but I think if you look a little bit closer, it's, it's a little bit more of a rotation into some more uh, distressed and unprofitable companies 
than necessarily um, cheap companies uh, with solid balance sheets. So there's been a, a, a rotation into that uh, based on, on the slope of the yield curve, which, you know, from our perspective is um, it's positive in the sense that one, the better the economy, obviously, the better the outlook is for the companies that we own in their portfolio. But two, I think that um, you really need to know why, you know, your stocks are underperforming or outperforming. And, you know, if it has to do with a rotation predicated on the yield curve, um, those have typically been opportunities. We certainly saw that in the fourth quarter of 2016 when rates moved up a lot higher and then uh, began to fade. You know, this one probably has some durability. Interest rates are now back to where they were pre-pandemic. A combination of vaccines and tremendous stimulus, obviously. But uh, they're well off of their highs in November of 2018 uh, when the 10 year Treasury was double where it is today, uh, more in the 3.2 to 3.4% range uh, versus today's 1.7. So a stronger economy bodes well for our companies uh, for sure. Um, the sector rotations are just the nature of markets currently. And um, you know, they should be used to your advantage, provided nothing has changed with the underlying companies that you own. With your emphasis, Noah, being on U.S. and global mandates and, and markets, I wanted to see if we could just walk through the two of your particular funds, the Dynamic Power American Growth Fund and the Dynamic Power Global Growth Fund, both of which had pretty incredible years in 2020, and 2020 brought a lot of opportunities to you, how they're currently positioned. And maybe we could start, though, with a brief overview of what you're looking for in the companies that you're selecting for these two particular mandates. So typically our process, which has served us for a long period of time, moving into our 24th year soon, has been to find companies that have the ability to grow over time. And typically we're looking for fast growing companies, uh, high teens or better revenue and earnings growth at the end of the day. Um, we are really focused on that revenue and earnings growth. So, you know, we're not looking for um, thematic growth stocks or potential revenues or potential earnings. We're looking for real revenues today and real earnings, however you want to measure that. I mean, you want to measure that through earnings per share. You want to measure that through uh, cash flow per share, uh, free cash flow per share. Um, we're looking at economic earnings at the end of the day. And so we run a screen globally uh, in the U.S. and globally as well, and we're trying to find companies that meet that criteria. Uh, there's not a lot of companies that meet that criteria, uh, but we probably get from a universe of 5,000 companies, our screens probably get us down to uh, somewhere between 100 and 200 names uh, on average. And then really we spend the time doing the fundamental work on the company really trying to figure out, you know, what does this company look like three to five years from now? What's the potential for the earnings to grow to? What's the potential for the revenues, obviously, to grow to? Where can the operating margins be? And obviously, continually reassess where the margins can go and whether or not the management team can execute those goals. And so for us, that process has stayed constant, regardless of the monthly or daily or 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 three-month um, rotation. And sticking to that discipline and process, I think, is what's sort of generated the 20-plus-year track record, uh, whether that's in the global fund or in the American fund. Um, sticking to that discipline and process is key because what we know over time is that um, those companies that can grow, uh, both revenues and earnings, uh, the stock price tends to follow over long periods of time. And our goal is to say whether the stock price today provides enough upside to where we think the future revenues and future earnings can be, uh, that it's a worthwhile investment today. 
I was watching one of your recent interviews on CNBC and, you know, I think for a lot of our listeners that have seen you on some of the, the bigger media outlets where you're being interviewed, we hear over and over again, your commitment to this process. And it's that commitment to process you speak about often that's led you to a lot of innovative companies. And given what we're going through with the pandemic, many of which have been in the healthcare sector, maybe let's talk a little bit about what secular growth themes you are investing in right now. And is this growth still intact? Yeah, I, I think pre-pandemic, you know, we were really at the beginning of a shift, whether that was in terms of e-commerce, whether that was in the, the shift toward digital transformation of enterprises. You know, when we were investors um, just after the IPO in, in, in Google, at the time, um, you know, there was a, a huge advertising market and online advertising uh, was less than, I believe, uh, 2% of total ad dollars were, were, were going online. Yet people in the coveted demographics were spending roughly 20% of their time online. And so when you, if you think about that back then, you know, when they went, when they went public, you know, they were just doing under $2 billion of revenue. And, and, and the thought process was, well, you know, even if they capture a small piece of this global advertising pie, this is a 15 or $20 billion type of opportunity. When you see that shift of ad dollars, though, that occurred in the middle part of the, of the last decade from traditional media to online, you realize that this is a, this is a theme that's no longer just uh, affecting advertising, for example. Um, you're seeing uh, this overall shift uh, transforming uh, the way we view and consume media. You're seeing it, you know, I think if the pandemic did anything, it highlighted the importance of cloud-based technologies. But this was occurring before the pandemic and pre-pandemic. But it just put a, a much larger emphasis on the ability to have uh, cloud-based applications, uh, as well as just the uh, tremendous investment that's gone on the cloud by the large uh, hyperscale cloud companies. You know, the future of, of reaching customers and the future of using analytics, whether that's in machine learning or, or artificial intelligence, um, really to connect with and to figure out what your customers are looking for. Uh, we were entering the, the next generation of technology where it's not really about selling a box that sits on your desk or a, a piece of uh, glass and metal that sits in your pocket. It's really about how you engage with customers, how you communicate with customers, and ultimately how you sell products. And that's really transformative uh, of all enterprises. And then with internally within enterprises, you can just think of the competition for digital transformation. You know, the competition really on digital transformation is, is, is paper. You know, how many processes are done by paper? How many are done by, by old-time reports? And it's really streamlining enterprises to become much more productive and much more efficient, as well as using digital channels to interact with uh, and, and get customers. You know, we've seen it repeatedly in, in whether it's in retailers or even in banks in the United States. Uh, uh, getting a new customer is so much cheaper uh, doing it online than it is in the traditional way. And so... You know, this is this is just the future of capitalism and the future of, of, of consumer engagement. And we still have a very, very long way to go uh, in terms of uh, the opportunity for uh, infrastructure companies, uh, in terms of uh, companies who are redoing enterprise software, um, and in terms of just, you know, every industry embracing uh, technology uh, to get new customers and grow their businesses, whether that's in banking, uh, whether that's in travel, whether that's in media, um, even where, even healthcare, uh, these themes are um, secular in nature um, and are going to continue long after the pandemic has passed. 
Another area getting a, a lot of attention in discussions, and I guess largely due to just to the, you know, the outperformance in the U.S. last year, is around geographies. So if we think about international uh, versus U.S., where are you seeing new opportunities outside of North America within your global mandates right now? So, you know, the difference between the U.S. power American growth and dynamic uh, global growth really has, has very little to do uh, with um, anything other than the opportunity set. So whereas the American fund is just focused on the U.S., the global fund is focused on the world. So the opportunity set globally is larger than it is in the U.S. Um, but I would say that we're not, you know, we don't talk about geographies or sectors um, necessarily as uh, areas from a top-down view uh, that we would invest in. Everything is driven by the process and everything is driven from the bottom up. So wherever we can find uh, fast-growing, profitable companies uh, with the opportunity to be significantly larger, uh, we'll do our due diligence on those companies and then look at the opportunities ahead of them. So, you know, despite the emphasis on the U.S. in 2020, obviously our global funds had a, a, an extremely strong year. Um, but whether that was in uh, sort of the emergence of uh, digital banking and financial technology in Brazil, uh, whether that was e-commerce and gaming in Asia, um, whether that was payments um, in, in Europe, um, the, many of the things, the areas of secular growth that we've talked about, digital transformation of finance, of healthcare, of media, of reaching the consumer, um, many of these trends uh, are global in nature. It's not just happening in the United States or in Canada. It's happening in Europe. It's happening in Indonesia. It's happening in the Philippines. It's happening in Brazil. And so, you know, we talk uh, with a U.S.-centric focus often in, in North America, uh, but these are global trends that are happening everywhere. You know, each market is a little bit different by the regulatory uh, aspects of it, but for sure, many of the themes that we've talked about uh, in the U.S. are themes that are uh, occurring globally, and that's really not coming down from sort of a 10,000-foot view from the top of the mountain. That's from base station zero at the bottom of the hill, um, working our way uh, up to the top to get a bigger picture. Uh, for sure, uh, what we're seeing is from the bottom up, these trends are global and secular in nature. You also speak quite often uh, you know, in the media and in your commentaries about central bank involvement in the markets. And we've heard quite a bit from central banks, especially in the last few weeks. What are your thoughts on what they've been doing of late and also on the direction of the overall rate scenarios that we're seeing emerge. I think, you know, on the negative side, I think every sort of big bear market of my career, excluding the pandemic, was really caused by raising interest rates too much. Um, I think that the, the market today with the move in rates is arguing that the Federal Reserve will be raising rates a lot sooner than they said they are going to raise interest rates. And they're certainly trying to avoid... Uh, tightening financial conditions and raising rates uh, too soon. There are base effects on a year-over-year -year basis of, with the pandemic, just the collapse of the economy uh, during the shutdowns. There's obviously going to be some higher inflation just because of the year-over-year -year comparisons uh, are going to be high. But, you know, what happens uh, longer term uh, in terms of the secular forces on inflation? Uh, you know, there still is no general theory of inflation despite Every single person getting on television and talking about inflation is coming. We still actually don't really know what causes inflation. Obviously, 
printing too much money uh, is inflationary, but no one really knows what exactly that means. And so, you know, f- uh, from my perspective, I think that you can get a lot caught up a lot in the in the overall macro. Uh, I think it's really important to focus in on companies, but I think that the bigger risk to companies is obviously going into a recession, and that usually pre-pandemic has been induced by central banks tightening uh, interest rates too far. Um, you know, they told us not to look at the yield curve when it was inverting, and then we had a nearly 20% correction in the markets in the fourth quarter of 2018. So I worry a lot about central bank mistakes um, on raising rates too far. I also worry that in the in the last little while, you've certainly seen a tremendous number of companies with very questionable balance sheets um, and really questionable companies as going concerns that the uh, stimulus and the uh, bond buying really allowed them to use the markets as a refinancing tool. Uh, there were a number of companies, for example, who were basically, um, from an operating basis anyway, in, in, in the short term, were insolvent. And, you know, you've seen some of those companies double or triple their share count and issue and were able to issue uh, bonds as well. Uh, really, those are companies that should have gone under. So I think central banks sort of during this pandemic change the functioning a little bit of the markets to financing from sorting out the right capital allocation, I think. And so, you know, I worry a little bit about that, but uh, that doesn't really change my main focus. I know my main focus is to find a company in the early stages of its growth, um, profitable growth, uh, wherever that company may be, and and, and try and um, find it and own it. Uh, If that management team can execute, that's how we deliver returns for shareholders. And that, at the end of the day, um, despite multiple central banks, despite multiple um, interest rate regimes, uh, really, that's really the way to make money over time in the stock market, as far as I'm concerned. There's always so much to unpack for investors when they're looking at the market broadly. And it seems like every few years, we, uh, we end up with something new that garners a lot of headlines and often comes in the form of an acronym. Uh, I'm almost reluctant to, uh, to go down this road with you, but because it's out there in such a heavy way... We're hearing a lot about SPACs right now, or these special purpose acquisition companies. For investors listening to us today, they're unfamiliar with the term. Essentially, a SPAC or these special purpose acquisition companies are companies listed on a stock exchange that acquire private companies and then take them into the public company realm. But my question to you, Noah, is if you could give us your thoughts on these companies, the, you know, the momentum behind the growth of this space and any impact this might be having on the markets and anything investors need to be concerned with or paying attention to? We run a couple of hedge fund mandates and in, in our more aggressive one in the Global Growth Opportunities Fund. You know, part of the problem more recently on the short side has been that a lot of companies with just atrocious credit, terrible fundamentals, and heavily indebted balance sheets have been the best performing stocks over the last six months. So it's over the last even nine months. So it's been frustrating in that sense uh, on the short side. But in one of the portfolios, we've spent a lot of time on a lot of these SPACs. And um, at least four of them have been uh, quite profitable for our Global Growth Opportunities Fund on the short side. There's a tremendous amount that we can unpack on SPACs. Uh, I would just say um, for individual investors, the best bet is to not participate uh, if you don't know uh, who the sponsor is or what's going on and just sit on the sidelines. You know, I think that um, there's a lot of money to be made for the sponsors. There's a lot of money to be made for people who are doing pipes investments. That's you know, um, 
uh, private investment and public equities, which are typically SPACs, and there's a tremendous amount of dilution. And so um, I, I, I think it's a, it's a very dangerous area uh, for the most part. I think it will all settle down and uh, winners will be sorted from losers. Uh, but that's going to take some time. There are some good firms that are sponsoring SPACs for sure. Some VCs, venture capitalists with with excellent reputations and no deals announced. But you really got to go through the details of each of these individual SPACs. And it's it's a tremendous amount of work. And, um, you know, I would say more recently, some of uh, these nonsense ones have been profitable shorts. Uh, but I would just tell investors to um, ignore them, especially when they come out. Um, and then after they do a deal, and if you can analyze the facts of the deal, you know, maybe they'll work out. Maybe they're interesting opportunities for sure. But um, as of now, I think that um, they should be, personally, from our point of view, uh, we're avoiding them uh, on the long side. And some of the ones that have been backed into companies with no revenue and no earnings for the next seven years that have been stuffed into a SPAC so they could announce a deal. Um, from our perspective, represent um, excellent areas uh, for the short side. And there have been very few excellent areas uh, on the short side over the past nine months. I appreciate that insight. Another area too that has been in the news recently, and these are tools that have been around for a long time. Of course, I'm referring to hedge funds, but more negative news recently. When we think about firms like Melvin Capital, most recently in the last week with Archegos Fund, very different from what you mentioned as the hedge funds that you run. And for you know our listeners that have this you know un- unfortunate view from the media that hedge funds are, are run like the TV show Billions, wanted to get your thoughts on these types of hedge funds and how that differs with what you're trying to achieve in your hedge fund and alternative strategies. Well, first of all, you mentioned me on CNBC, and um, one of the uh, writers and producers of the first few seasons of Billions was Andrew Sorkin, who's a host of Squawk Box, and. Um, I would say that it's obviously fictional on billions, but Andrew is certainly a financial news reporter for both the New York Times and CNBC. So, you know, names may have been changed to protect the innocent, but there's a lot of interesting stuff on the early seasons of billions anyway that uh, some people would say, oh, yeah, I know who they're pretending to be. Um, But I would say, you know, listen, we run hedge funds that are opportunistic and performance oriented like global growth opportunities or alpha performance, which are trying to be low vol. Um, And so we've never really employed leverage to a massive extent like some of these funds that have gotten themselves into trouble more recently. Um, I I know the stories of these two funds. I don't know the facts. So I'm not going to really comment on them uh, specifically. Um, but I would say that, um, you know, to the extent that, that it could have an effect, you know, obviously we didn't own GameStop. Uh, we certainly haven't uh, been involved in any actually of the uh, Chinese names um, that were uh, more recently in the big block trades that were going up during the liquidation of the other hedge fund um, or a family office at the time. So we haven't been involved. But the fact of the matter is, is that um, deleveraging can impact a whole group of stocks if, if these funds are deleveraging. And so there are stocks that got them into trouble and there are stocks that we might hold that they hold that they have to sell as for sellers. That's typically an opportunity provided nothing has changed uh, fundamentally. So um, obviously there's been a few things going on. I think that um, I am not ignoring it. I have lived through long-term capital. I have seen um, the debacle that occurred in 2008 with uh, off-balance sheet um, instruments. Uh, I would say that CDS spreads, um, so credit default spreads on the banks still look fairly benign. 
except for uh, a couple of the European and Japanese banks who are directly involved. Um, and so I, I'm looking at all the signs of stress in the system. And while these hedge funds um, that blew up can have an impact in the very short term on names that we overlap with, I would say that um, so far that doesn't appear to be systemic. That could change. I don't know what the size of the losses at any of these banks. It's something that we're clearly watching. Um, but as of now, it seems fairly benign. And you know, if those facts change, then, then we'll adjust accordingly. So as we think then about a lot of the contributors to the gyrations, and most of them are short-term gyrations in the market, and some of which we've talked about here today, you know, as a growth investor, how do you look through these gyrations to what really drives the performance of the companies you're invested in? And really interested to you know hear what you've been seeing from your companies during the recent earnings season and their future outlook. Yeah, I think we've over the last couple of years have been asked our thoughts on value investing and, and, and deep value investors. And um, uh, I've constantly praised true value investors and the importance of having both pure growth and pure value investors within your portfolio. These types of moves uh, that you've seen over the last 30-ish days, probably since the 16th of February until now, these type of rotations can't be timed. You just you need to be able to own a, a, a true deep value manager on one side and a, and a growth manager on the other side. And so, you know, I've I've always believed that you need to diversify with stop by style, and um, and I think that you know that's that's critical. I think the value funds have had some of their best relative performance in in a very very long time and in in a very short period of time. Um, and I've, I've I've always sort of praised uh, some of the value managers out there. Uh, uh, you know. I don't believe any of them have ever returned the favor and said anything nice about me in the last 25 years, but that's okay. But for the most part, I would say that you know you just you really need to focus in on the companies and and, and what's driving those companies and how much bigger they can be, and and that at the end of the day, after all of these gyrations, and that you know that really comes with a very long experience of 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 doing this, and um, you know to sort of sit there and say to yourself, I I'm going to dump this company. Which is probably going to grow at 30 to 35 percent a year, and have the opportunity to go from um, I don't know a billion in revenue to probably 20 billion in revenue, and because the market is now looking favorably on movie theaters or cruise lines, or shopping malls, um, which weren't great before the pandemic, but we're we've come up with some cockamamie thesis that they're going to be great post the pandemic. And it's it, we're just going to rotate into that, you know. There's just I I I can't make money doing that. How I make money is by owning great growth companies that have that big opportunity in front of them that's not reflected in their current stock price. And and I really try not to do anything else. The ability to stick to that is really easy when you're up, you know, 20, 40, 60, 90 percent. But then you go through periods where, where it's not working. And so the difficulty a lot of investors have is to stick with it when it doesn't work, just like sticking with value when it wasn't working as it hurt. But if you can do that, that's really how you drive performance over time. And so, you know, it's never um, pullbacks are never fun or they're never enjoyable. But, you know, if you go up a lot, you should be you should expect at some point to uh, to give some back and then move higher from there. Yeah, I've heard in the last couple of interviews you've done, I mean, people love to ask you this question, right, about this rotation, and you've addressed that in the beginning of the call. And as I mentioned when we, we did the introduction that you you defined about how you look at value as what is the value in future growth when you're thinking right. about earnings and cash flow. But you also talked about the fact that value is important. And for you know distressed value investors out there, it's an important piece of a portfolio. But you do make the comment that the best way to access this is through active management. 
For sure. I think the other major factor is, you know, that as the evolution of macro investing, which has failed pretty badly since 2008, you know, and that may be attributable to quantitative easing. I don't know exactly why uh, it's it's been so dismal, but you've been in a slow growth, low inflation environment. So these rotations have just caught them off guard. But for the most part, um, these investors have rotated to factors. And a lot of the factors that they use and they use to rotate are, are, are value or growth index funds. And the problem is, is that the index providers are just basically, if you look at the construction of their value and growth indexes, they're really basically based on, you know, they're not really value and growth. They're expensive and cheap. They're low price to book versus high price to book and for the most part. And so the value indexes end up being mostly energy and banks and the growth indexes end up being healthcare, communication services and technology. And so you're more sector rotating than you are value and growth rotating. Um, I don't know, I'm not here to make somebody's factor funds better. Uh, at the end of the day, I just want to focus on individual companies. But, you know, there are sometimes there's information prices when companies are getting hit and stocks are going down that maybe there is something fundamentally wrong uh, with the company or with the management team or with the outlook. Um, but you need to be able to distinguish that between um, this dynamic in the market of people selling growth stocks to buy banks, for example, based on the slope of the yield curve. You really don't want to let that shake you out of a great company um, that can be a, a significantly larger company in the next five years. And really, you want to figure out you know, what the value of that company is. You know, when Facebook came public at just under $4 billion of revenue, if you did the kind of work that you could have done on Google, on Facebook, that stock was in the mid-20s in 2013. Five years forward, the stock is 200, was $200. Today, it's close to 300 And so it's gone from 25 to, to nearly $300 since 2013. Um, those are the type of things that drive portfolios, and those are the type of things that drive returns. And the reason why it did so well was the revenues and the earnings grew dramatically more than anybody thought. Those are the types of things that we're really trying to find. Well, Noah, these are great insights. And as always, it's a pleasure to have you speaking with us. And, and I look forward to our next conversation where undoubtedly things will have changed yet again. But the one thing we won't be talking about is any alteration in your process. And investors have certainly been rewarded as a result of that. Thank you very much for your time today and, and, and unpacking a lot of this information for us. As my favorite drummer of all time wrote, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Fantastic. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today at this edition of On The Money. And if you would like any more information on any of the mandates we discussed or further information on Dynamic Funds, please visit us at dynamic.ca. And of course, we always think that you should seek more advice on any of the information that we've covered today or on investing in general from a qualified financial advisor. On behalf of all of us here at Dynamic, we wish you continued good health and safety. And thanks again for joining us. You've been listening to another edition of On The Money with Dynamic Funds. For more information on Dynamic and our complete fund lineup, contact your financial advisor or visit our website at dynamic.ca. This audio has been prepared by 1832 Asset Management LP and is provided for information purposes only. Views expressed regarding a particular investment, economy, industry, or market sector should not be considered an indication of trading intent of any of the mutual funds managed by 1832 Asset Management LP. These views are not to be relied upon as investment advice, nor should they be considered a recommendation to buy or sell. These views are subject to change at any time based upon markets and other conditions, and we disclaim any responsibility to update such views.
To the extent this audio contains information or data obtained from third-party sources, it is believed to be accurate and reliable as of the date of publication. But 1832 Asset Management LP does not guarantee its accuracy or reliability. Nothing in this document is or should be relied upon as a promise or representation as to the future. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compound total returns, including changes in unit values. And reinvestment of all distributions does not take into account sales, redemption, or option changes, or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated.